Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. We've been in a series that we've entitled uh, Upside Down Kingdom, looking at the Sermon on the Mount, and we are about one-third of the way through, in essence, in the chapter sections, because the Sermon on the Mount is Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and we're through almost uh, chapter 5, but that's the longest section of the entire uh, thing, so we're moving along uh, relatively slowly, and hopefully you're enjoying uh, our time in doing so, and as we have been learning this, it has been taking us, and Jesus has been taking us on this journey as he's preached this sermon to take some of the cultural norms that are even prevalent within our church and to turn them on their head. And and a lot of these uh, verses and passages have tested us. They have really challenged us, and they've done so by showing us two profound truths. If you want to understand in a microcosm of what the Sermon on the Mount is about, first of all, it is Jesus reminding us that our calling to righteousness if we're going to do it on our own, must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. And literally none of us, none of us are able to do it on our own. In and of ourselves, we will never live out any of these things by ourselves. And that then means that the first thing you should feel when you hear this, and this is important for you to know, is when you do the Sermon on the Mount, you're going to feel like a failure. Okay? Because guess who's preaching? It's Jesus. And guess who's perfect? Jesus. And guess who's not? You. By the way, I'm not either, okay? And so we're going to feel like a failure, but here's the thing. Jesus didn't preach these things just to say, Nana and a boo-boo, I'm better than you are. I'm perfect, you're not. You're a bunch of miserable failures. But what he says is stop trying to live life on your own. Stop trying to be a failure uh, in and of yourself and understand that when you come to me, when you come by faith and you bow the knee to, to my kingdom, then here's what I promise you. I will empower you. I will fill you with my Holy Spirit. And the things that were impossible for you to do in and of yourselves can become the essence of who you are in your everyday experience. Because of these things, we need to be careful that we do not shrink away from these teachings. We must not do as many have done in preaching of the Sermon on the Mount to minimize what Christ is requiring of us and in doing so emptying them of all significance. We as followers of Jesus Christ need to make sure we don't seek to find excuses but to submit and even listen to yearn to make this our reality no matter how hard they may be. Inherent within the text before us is what many would say is one of the most difficult passages for a western civilized citizen to adhere to. In a nutshell, this is going to be hard for us as Americans. We are so committed to our rights, so committed to our dignity. To stick to your rights is as American as apple pie. But it's not the way Jesus wants us to live. Because in many ways, Jesus is going to say, if you're going to follow me, you're going to surrender your rights as an American citizen for the sake of your heavenly kingdom. But as we approach this, we must not do what many have done, and that is cause contradictions in Scripture or to bring biblical authors into conflict with one another. But use our minds and our, the whole counsel of God's Word to show the truth of Christ and the truth and the direction that we need to go. So to do so, as a way of introduction, let's look to the passage before us, and we will dig right in. Matthew chapter 5, I'm going to ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word. Matthew 5, 38 through 42. And you can find that in the Pew Bible if you don't have one with you. Grab that Pew Bible, and you'll find our passage on 810, page 810. Here's what the text says before us. Jesus is telling us, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Let's stop there. You may be seated. A story is told of a psychologist who had no children of his own. Whenever he saw neighbors scolding their children for some wrongdoing, he would say to each of them, you should love your children, not punish them. And on one hot summer afternoon, the professor was doing some repair work on a concrete driveway leading to his garage. 
Completely worn out after several hours of work, he grabbed a, a towel, wiped the perspiration from his brow, and started towards his house. Just then, out of the corner of his eye, he saw a mischievous little boy putting his hands into the fresh cement. He rushed over, grabbed the child, and was about to berate him severely when a neighbor leaned over uh, out a porch and said to him, Watch it, Doc. Don't you remember? You must love the child. At this, the psychologist yelled back furiously, I do love him in the abstract, but not in the concrete. (laughs) A corny story that has deep and profound implications in our text today. You see, for us, as we listen to these words of Jesus, right away in your pew, you will say, I got it, Jesus. Yep, that's what I'm supposed to do. I can do that. It's a good principle. I can amen the preacher that preaches that. But herein lies the problem. We, like the psychologists, love that kind of teaching in the abstract, but not in the real world. It applies well in the sanctuary, but in our office places, in our families, in our neighborhoods, amidst enemies of ours, people who wrong us and hurt us, we can say, Jesus, yes, I agree with you in the abstract, but when it comes to me surrendering my rights, when I have no skin, when I have skin in the game, there's another issue altogether. All bets are off when someone wrongs us, when someone hurts us. One of the reasons is, is that the case for revenge is so natural to who we are. Jesus is going to talk to us about revenge and retaliation. And like God, you and I as human beings are wronged. We are offended. We like our creator, our people of honor, dignity, and respect. And when our dignity and honor is attacked, we long to demand it back in full. Where do we get that? I will assert this morning that we get that from God himself. When God is offended, When God is wrong, God demands repayment. He demanded the offense of us sinning and the penalty of our sin. He demanded his son go to the cross to take care of it. He couldn't overlook it. He demanded repayment. But herein lies the problem. Yes, we are bearers of God's image. And yes, we are offended and rightly feel like our honor should be Uh, treated with respect and dignity. But let us never forget that God is holy and we are not. And God has wronged no one. And you and I have wronged many. And we we have to be told that while vengeance and retaliation may be natural to us in our human existence, Jesus will tell us that when we go and seek revenge and retaliation, we sin. Because we put our rights and our dignity over that of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And here in Matthew chapter 5, we've already been told that we are to be poor in spirit. That we are to recognize our own wrongs that we have done to others. In fact, what we've done to God. We're to be merciful. That means when someone wrongs us, though they may uh, have something coming their way, we extend mercy and grace. We are called to be meek. That means that we don't assume that our rights are always going to have their way and that our prerogatives and and the things that we want to assert will always be the way they will go. And finally, in the Beatitudes, we're called to be peacemakers. Peacemakers who even in times of triumph, which is easy to keep peace when all is well, but even in the greatest times of tribulation, you and I are called to be salt and light to the world. Listen even when people wrong us. And we are to do so by not repaying evil for evil, but evil with good. Now, there is much, there is much for us to understand from this text, and I'm going to break it down in three ways this morning. The first thing we have to understand, as we have uh, previously, is we have to understand and examine the law of retaliation. That's what Jesus is talking about. He starts out and he says, You have heard it said... Now, he said that now. This is the, the, the fifth time we're going to hear this. You have heard it said. He did it with the issue uh, of anger and lust and divorce and oaths and now revenge and retaliation. And he says, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Now, before we can understand the Old Testament rendering, we need to understand that during the days of Jesus, the propagation 
of a certain type of teaching had taken place. And what it was was this, that the law that said an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, meant that if someone wronged me, it was my job to wrong them. This is what they were hearing in their synagogues and, and, and by their rabbis. So Tim, as a God-fearing Jew, if someone hurt your foot, I was to go and hurt their foot. If someone ruined my eye, I was to go and ruin their eye. If someone ruined my house, I would go and ruin their house. If someone took one of my family's life, I was to go and take their, one of their family's lives. And the rabbis would say, do not delay in doing so. Imagine the vigilante justice that was taking place. And understand that when we do this, it is rarely equal. What I mean by that is we are offended or wronged by someone and we say, because they've done something to me, the Pharisees say, go do something to them. Think of the unending circle of violence that would take place as a result of that. You hurt me, I hurt you, which means you have to hurt me back, which means I have to hurt you back. And here's the problem. Think of gangster violence that goes on in our cities today. It never stops. And so what happens is, is you shoot at me, I shoot back at you. You hit me, I'm going to shoot you and hit you. And then what happens? Then some random other individual is shot. And what happens is a city is embroiled in all kinds of violence because we have this tit for tat going on in the area of revenge. We see it in family feuds that start out between two people and escalates to uh, two families that don't even have a reason or understanding on why they are doing what they're doing because it defiles everyone who's involved. So here Jesus says, look at the text. You've heard it said. And what he's saying there, listen, he's saying the stuff you've been taught by the Pharisees and the rabbis of your day is garbage. It's garbage. And I need to restore back the law where it was supposed to be, to its rightful place. And I need to reorder some things in my followers' lives if you're going to live up to what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And so that's what I want to do. So Jesus begins, as he has with the four other teachings before it, starting at the beginning. Now before the time of Christ, they had lost their way. Because of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, so many had now bought into a line of thinking that had missed the very heart of God. So I want us to get back to the heart of God, and to do so, we have to get to the heart of his word. I want you to turn in your Bibles to three passages in the Old Testament. Exodus 21, we're going to start there. So keep your place in Matthew 5, we'll get back there. We need to understand Exodus 21. Exodus 21, verses 22 through 25. Exodus 21, verses 22 through 25. You can find that on page 62 in your pew Bible. Page 62. Exodus 21, 22 through 25 says the following. I want you to listen, okay? Because we're going to see some connections here. When men strive together, okay, that means they're fighting. When two men are fighting and hit a pregnant woman so that her child comes out, but there's no harm. That is that she's brought into premature labor, but she uh, brings forth a, a healthy child. The one who hit the woman shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose on him. But notice what the text says. This is important. As he shall pay as the judges determine. That's going to be critical. We're going to get back to that. But understand, this is, there's judges involved. But if there's harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Okay. So let's, let's remember that. Now let's turn to Leviticus chapter 24 for a moment. Just a book over. Go to your right to the book of Leviticus 24 verse 17. Okay? You'll find that on page 103 in your pew Bible. Leviticus 24 verses 17 through uh, 22. Here's what the text says there. Whoever takes a human life surely shall surely be put to death. Whoever takes an animal's life shall make it good, life for life. If anyone injures his neighbor, as he has done, it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. Whoever kills an animal shall make it good. 
Whoever kills a person shall be put to death. You shall have the same rule for the sojourner and for the native, for I am the Lord your God. Now notice, he says this is a rule. This is something I want you to live by. Now we've got to go to one more passage, Deuteronomy 19. Deuteronomy 19. So keep going to the right, a couple books over, to the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 19, starting in verses 15 through 21. You'll find that on page 162 in your Bible. Deuteronomy 19, 15 through 21. We're going to get to what Jesus is talking about. Hopefully this is helping us a little bit in understanding what the Word was articulating. In verse 15, A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any work in connection with the offense he has committed. Only on the evidences of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priest and the judges who are in office in those days. The judges shall inquire diligently, and if a witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother, so you shall purge the evil from your midst, and the rest shall hear and fear and never again commit any such evil amongst you. And here's the text. Your eyes shall not pity. It shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Now sit there for a minute, and I want you to see something that's so very important, and it's inherent within the other text. Notice all of the courtroom vernacular in that passage. Notice witnesses, offenses, evidence, charges. Notice they are to appear before priests and the judges who are in office. Notice witnesses who falsely witness or accuse. And what is to happen? They are to give an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a hand for a hand. So within this, okay, now get back to Matthew 5. Within this, you have just read three passages in the Old Testament that speak of the same law. It's the oldest law in all of the world. Did you know that? An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. It's as old as you can get. It was called the Lex Talionis. And we find it in the Code of Hammurabi, an ancient uh, book of laws, and, and which created order. Now, we, we've heard in our vernacular similar statements, a tit for a tat. Uh, in legal terms, it's quid pro quo. In, in our American vernacular, it means uh, an equal punishment for the crime. What it means in the Hammurabi's code was if a man has caused the loss of a gentleman's eye, his eye shall be caused to be lost. If a man shatters a gentleman's limb, one shall shatter his limb. In other words, listen, bound up in the human heart is a sense of justice. But the problem is, is it gets perverted when it gets into vengeance. But don't miss the point. And the point is that this law, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, is a good law. Jesus isn't saying that it's not good in the least bit. This law is a law that puts fear into the hearts of people. The law, listen does nothing but good for righteous individuals. It protects them. And it reminds in a judicial way to the perpetrator or the offender of what will happen when he does wrong. So to understand this law, we need to understand two important aspects of it. Number one, it it guarantees, okay, so we're in the first point that we've addressed, okay, that we're to examine this law of retaliation. Now notice we are to guarantee it guarantees an appropriate retribution. Now, before we talk about retribution, I need to articulate a couple things about this. The law that the the Mosaic law is bringing out, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, is not for us as individuals, but for the institution of civil government. That is critical to interpreting this passage. Okay? We need to understand that what Jesus is going to say is, An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, that's all good when it comes to government. But when it comes to you, no, it's no good as a follower of Jesus Christ. That is not your place to find vengeance. Now let me remind you, because here in America we seem to have forgotten this, okay, and may have good reason to do so, that civil government is not a curse on society, but a grace that God gives. 
That's hard for us to swallow in this day and age at times. That doesn't mean that every government or every leader is good and fair. Just like with all graces that God gives, we defile them due to our sin. But God has intended government to do three important tasks. Write these down somewhere on the side of your outline. Government number one is to restrain evil. It's to restrain evil. Number two, they're responsible to keep order. So restrain evil and responsible to keep order. And number three, they are relied on, government is relied on by its citizens to be fair and just, to be objective. So this is the law that's before us, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. What, Jesus, what the law is saying is government, you are to be the judge in all criminal and civil matters. The church's job is not to deal with crimes. It's not to deal with litigation. It is to deal with worship and honoring God and preparing God's people for works of service. Government's job is to deal with crimes and punishment and litigation. But here are the parameters for your job. When someone does another person wrong government or someone wrongs society as a whole, you are to put this law in action. And it guarantees government a couple things for you. Number one, it guarantees an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, that any punishment that you have will always fit the crime. What that means is if someone breaks into your house, they should know as a perpetrator they're going to get in trouble, but that they will not get the death penalty. That punishment doesn't fit the crime. Secondly, it shows mercy to the victim. And it shows the terrible law. So if someone uh, breaks my arm, the government doesn't say, oh, sad, so sad, your arm was broken by that thug, and we're going to sit idly by and let it go. No, government says, we recognize the pain and suffering that can happen when you're assaulted and your arm is broken, and we are not going to turn a blind eye to this offense, and we will rectify it by doing something very similar to them so that they may sympathize with what they've done to you. That's good. Next, it's beneficial to society. It deters wrongdoing because it tells people if you're going to hurt someone, if you're going to break the law, then you will be hurt in return. So it's a, there's a negative side to its beneficiality. Number two, it's beneficial because it tells citizens that their government stands behind them and is for them when they honor the laws and statutes. You don't have to go and seek revenge. We will deal with it for you so you don't have to be mired in the details of it. And we will do so objectively. We will do so seeking the full penalty for the crime that's been committed. All of this is good. But notice the second aspect that this does, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, is it guards against personal revenge. The law in its original form kept all men from the pursuit of revenge. How things had changed to that point at the time of Christ. Because now this law that the rabbis were teaching was a license, a license for vigilante justice. It compelled upon us, the listener, to take the law in our own hands and exact punishment as we saw fit in our own eyes. And it wasn't just a law that they taught. It was a law that the Pharisees and chief priests and the Sanhedrin believed in. We don't have to look any farther than the trial of Jesus Christ. All of those trials, all of that litigation was in rebellion to the rule of law. The rule of law of that day was that you did not hold a trial during night. Jesus experienced a couple trials during the night. That the accused would always have opportunity for witnesses to speak on their behalf. Jesus was given none. Now, why would they blatantly disregard the law? Because what they wanted to do was not deal with Jesus from a civil matter, as they should have, but they had a pound of flesh they wanted to get. And so what they did is they said, hey, we're going to make this a mockery, and from the outset, they commanded and exacted revenge on Jesus who had upstaged them, who had shown them for their hypocrisy through his love and his truth. And from the outset, they got their pound of flesh of personal vengeance, not order. 
So from the get-go, we need to understand that this eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, is a principle not for us as individuals, but for the government. And what Jesus' words are going to be is not that the eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, is wrong for government, but that it's wrong for us as individuals, especially followers of Jesus Christ, to live out. Now, many will take this passage from Jesus and use it to fight against the issue of capital punishment and the use of force by our military. And to do so is to make a, do a complete disservice to our text. Here's what I understand about it. It would seem from a clear and natural rendering of the text, not only here but in other passages of Scripture, that God gives government great latitude in dealing with crimes and punishment. And he gives heads of state great allowance to wage war. The only criteria that God demands of civil governments is that they be just. And above all, that they be fair in their dealings to defend against great evils and atrocities. And so you may say, well, Tim, I'm against capital punishment, and that's a place that you can land. I see from Scripture that while capital punishment is something that many will bristle against, it seems that God has said, for the order of society, if someone takes the life of one, his life will be counted against him as well. And so we can't miss that point. And while war is a terrible thing, the Bible sure does seem to give allowances for us not to sit there when someone attacks us and say to our citizens and to the evildoers, well, we'll turn the other cheek and allow them to continue that, but to defend ourselves as a nation. God doesn't give that to the church. He doesn't give that to us as people, uh, as individuals, but he gives that seemingly to the nation. And notice in Romans chapter 13, we are to submit to that. And when we are doing well, it will go well for us. When we are doing evil, watch out because the government has given that. And so these words that are in the law before us aren't for us, but for our civic leaders and our judges. But notice what Jesus says. He says, I'm not even going to address that. And so I digress from that whole issue of government because that's not the purpose of Jesus's argument here. Jesus says, okay, but I say to you, he's not talking to the Romans, he's not talking to Congress or our president or a prime minister, he's talking to followers of Jesus Christ. And he says this eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth thing, if you think you can get away with it, you've got another thing coming. If you think that you are compelled to revenge uh, a wrong done against you or to retaliate, you're not, but you are to be willing as a follower of Jesus Christ to endure hardship like a good soldier, to be willing to overlook grievances and offenses and go the extra mile for the glory of God. Now that's a mouthful because there's a lot of wrongs that have been done towards us. And so what that means is we've got to rethink our rights as Christians. That's the second point. We need to rethink our rights as Christians. Now, Tim, are you telling me that I have to forego my rights to personal wrongdoing? That I have no recourse but to forgive and to show grace when someone wrongs me? I'm not saying that, but it sure does seem that that's exactly what Jesus is saying. And we know this from four particular areas, and it's good that we flesh this thing out because we need to understand it from a wise and discerning point of view. And so here's what we know of Scripture. As believers... We are being called to diminish ourselves and our rights in some very tangible ways because, number one, Christ has called us to emulate his example. To emulate his example. Our goal as Christians must be to live like Jesus more and more each day. At our annual meeting on Friday, I spoke about the elders' desire for us to be a transformed people and a transformed church. To be transformed means we have to change our daily lives to become more, uh, more and more of bearers of Christ's image. To in greater measure do as he would have done. To love as he would have loved. To live as he would have lived. And to lead as he would have led. In order to do this, you and I must follow his example. Now here's the thing. It isn't holiness and Christ-likeness isn't pin the tail on the donkey. Where God blindfolds us and says, good luck. Just put that piece, uh, that tail wherever you think it should go. And as close as you get, that's fine. You know, just try to be as close as possible. No, God said, you're never going to get this righteous thing on your own. 
You're lost. You're blind. The devil's held you captive. And so what I need to do is I need to send someone who can show you the way. And so he sent his son who put on flesh and lived a life. And now he says, I want you to do the same as he did. I want you to live like him. Now, that's easy to say on Sunday morning. That's easy for me to preach here in the pulpit. It's hard to live like Christ did at work or at school or in our family scenarios and situations when, when people wrong us and hurt us and walk over us. It becomes a bigger thing. But here's the thing. Jesus did it. I want you to know since Jesus came to earth from his earliest days... We know that his parents were ridiculed for alleged impropriety. Jesus on the playground of Nazareth was called a bastard child. Your dad isn't your dad. Your mom was messing around when she shouldn't have been. He was hunted down as a child, we know. His parents had to flee to Egypt because someone wanted to kill him as a kid. He was hounded and harassed by the rulers of his day. He was betrayed by one of his disciples, abandoned by most of his friends. The crowd that loved him on Palm Sunday only four or five days later would call for his crucifixion. The leaders of his day would arrest him. They would beat him and they would unjustly hang him on a cross to die. And all the while, every day of his life, he was open to insult and injury and was cursed and mocked at while he died. Now, here's the thing. We say, well, Jesus endured some hardships for about 12, 24 hours during his arrest and crucifixion. Understand that this happened all of his life. You think you got it bad? Leave perfection. Leave angels worshiping you day and night and endure that. Now, we deserve some of the hardships because we are a pain in the butt, pardon the expression, to people. Jesus was not that. He was perfect. He was sacrificial love personified. And this struck Peter, a follower of his. It struck him to the core that entire letter, letter in the New Testament is written on this issue of suffering. Because Peter is struck by this saying, this Jesus was amazing. He suffered and suffered and suffered and he honored God, and he did not repay evil with evil. And in the middle of 1 Peter, he utters these words that are such a reminder for us. Listen. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin, you are beaten for it that you endure? But when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Listen, for this is what you've been called. Because Christ has also suffered for you. He's left you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Well, what are his steps? He who committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. How do we walk in the ways of Christ? When someone wrongs us, we don't wrong them back. When someone reviles us, we don't come back with that great put down. When someone lies to us, we don't lie to them. When someone harms us, we don't harm them. It means that if we are going to follow in the steps of Jesus, listen to me. If you want to seek revenge, you will never seek Christ. And so you have a choice to make. We all have a choice to make. Either I'm going to follow Christ in his footsteps, or I'm going to trudge my own way and my own journey towards revenge. You can't have revenge in Christ in the same way. You're going to serve one and hate the other. It's going to involve us surrendering our rights to save others. So we emulate Christ's example. And then we're called as Christians to surrender our rights to save others. Now, not only are we to allow the receiving of personal wrongs and offenses to take place without a response, but at times we will all together have to surrender our rights for another's sake. Have you ever thought that some of the best evangelism that you can do can be done without ever sharing a word? By lovingly and graciously enduring hardships 
and mocking and beatdowns for the glory of God? To be like Jesus in that way? Paul says if we are going to participate in Christ's resurrection, we must also participate in his death and his suffering. Paul does this in a couple ways. Write these passages down for the sake of time. Romans 9, 3. Paul, man, he drops the nuclear bomb on us by his faithfulness. In Romans 9, 3, he says this to God and to all who will hear his words. I am willing to give up my right for salvation, he says in Romans 9, 9, 3, for the sake of my fellow Jewish people. Do you understand what he's saying there? I am willing to give up my right as a child of God and forfeit the eternal salvation that is mine so that others might be saved. I'm willing to give up eternity. I'm willing, God, to burn in hell if that will mean that you might save my kinsmen. Are you willing to do that? John Owen once said, give me Scotland or I'll die. That heartfelt, Lord, I'll do whatever it takes. I'll forfeit whatever I have to so that others may receive the gospel even if I am rightly due some things. Are you willing to endure that? You see, the problem is we're unwilling to endure someone cutting us off on the expressway. We're unwilling to give up our place in line at a grocery store. We are unwilling to allow someone to wrong us and seek retribution instead of maybe allowing love to cover a multitude of sins. And we do so against the good lessons of Paul and the example of Christ. And it's not easy. Write this passage down, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 3 through 10. Paul says, this isn't going to be easy. And he says, ministry is going to be like this. Serving Christ is going to be like this, where we are continually surrendering ourselves for the sake of others. Verse 3, we put no obstacle in anyone's way, so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But we, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. How? How do we prove our faithfulness as followers of Jesus Christ? That's what he's saying. Listen to what he says. By great endurance, in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonment, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, purity, knowledge, patience, kindness of the Holy Spirit, genuine love through truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness on the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as imposters and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and yet we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. The Bible seems to say that the gospel and the kingdom of God will cause us as Christians to trump our personal entitlement to rights and liberties and retaliation and revenge for the sake of his kingdom. Boy, this is hard. Jesus, is this really what you're saying? It seems to be. Now notice what he wants us to do in times of tribulation when people wrong us. What is our response? If it's not revenge, what is it? We are to testify through trials. The Bible's full of passages where people endured all sorts of tribulation for the glory of God. The best place to see that in the Old Testament is the story of Joseph. Joseph has been wronged by his brothers. I mean, my brothers have done things to me, but nothing like what Joseph's brothers did. Joseph's brothers wanted him dead. But they had some compassion, and they threw him into a pit, sold him off to a bunch of journeying say, uh, traders, went and told their dad that he's dead, killed by an animal. Joseph is put into being a slave. And while Joseph's time in Egypt has some ups, mostly it is downs. And you've got to wonder what the response would be. I didn't say this in the first service, but have you ever wondered what the moment of uh, glorification was for some of the followers of God in the Old Testament in the moment when they got to heaven? Let me help you with this. I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall when 
Cain showed up in heaven and Abel standing there. How about when David dies and sees Uriah face to face? What, what was going on there? Well, well, we don't know, so we can't, we can't speculate, but I know what Joseph did. And I love Joseph because Joseph has a little fun with his brothers when they show up in Egypt, right? Starts messing with them. But you know he, what he doesn't do is an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Okay? What does he say? He says, revenge doesn't belong to me, and here's why it doesn't belong to me. Because what you intended for harm, God has used for good. What a great principle. And what that means is you will never, listen, this is important, you will never experience God's good when someone wrongs you when you seek revenge. Because you never give God enough time to address the good that's going to come, the blessing that's going to come, you're going to miss it. Because you're too busy, you're too hell-bent on retaliating than letting God determine everything. And so here's what Joseph says, yeah, what you did was wrong. Boy, man, it hurt. It was not fun. But you know what? God took the garbage that you did in my life, and he produced so much good. Not only the good for me, but the good of a nation. For your good. I am here because you, you guys are here in Egypt because you're out of food. And you wouldn't have had anybody to come to to get food. But you did something wrong. And God used it not only to save a nation, but to save you. But when we seek revenge, all of that's off the table. And so notice what we're called to do. We are called to rejoice when people harm us. What are you talking about, Tim? This is insanity, yep. Insanity to the world, but wisdom from God. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 through 12, this is what Jesus says. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. Mark this down. It's in red. It means, Tim, dummy, don't miss this. So I don't want to forget it. You can't rejoice in God. You can't rejoice in God when you are pursuing revenge. So you've got a choice to make. Honor God amidst the most difficult of circumstances when people revile you, when they hate your guts, when they hurt you, when they harm you, when they uh, cut you down from limb to limb, you can either choose that I'm going to follow my leading and my desires and make sure they get their pound of flesh that's coming to them, or as a follower of Jesus Christ, I will pursue and rejoice and be glad in God. There's your choices. But understand this, when you're going pursuing revenge, you're doing it alone. God isn't with you. God says it's not your place. It's mine. So don't let us let ever forget that. Rejoice and be glad. Don't seek revenge. Now some of you will say, well, Tim, this is all uh, good. And, and yeah, but, but I'm a discerning person. And what you're saying, Tim, is that we are to be doormats for Christ. Yes, in some ways, yes. But, there's always a but, but... We need to be wise and discerning how we apply this. And so then we have to add one more point. That all these are true, but we must also assert our rights when applicable and advantageous to the gospel. Now that's a mouthful. Let me ask you, or let me present this, this scenario to you. Let's say at 410 Prairie View Lane... Tonight, while my family is sleeping, an armed assailant comes into our home. I want to make sure that you understand where your preacher is standing in this. So, Tim, does that mean when that armed assailant comes into your home, you're going to say, hey, welcome. Welcome to the house. My family's upstairs. Uh, all the stuff that you could ever want or desire in my home is all here for you to take. And while you're doing that, I'm going to go ahead and go down to the kitchen. It's early in the morning. I'll cook you up some breakfast. We'll have some coffee. Okay, let me tell you about Jesus. Now, God may lead you to do that, but I don't think he's leading me to do that. Okay? I'm just shooting straight with you here, okay? I think I'm going to defend myself. I think the greatest good is for me to defend that which God has given me, more my family than stuff, by the way. Okay? 
I ain't going for the TV. I'm going for my wife and my children. Okay? And I'm going to defend them. I'm going to defend them because that's what God's called me to do. Okay? When he says, do not resist an evil man, that's not what he's talking about. What he's talking about is once the man has assailed me and my family, once he has uh, taken and plundered from me all that I have and, and gone away, my job isn't to go find him and assail his family and steal from him and, and add on to violence with violence. Does that make sense? Okay? So I'm not saying we aren't to defend ourselves, but we are to be just in our defense. And listen, not all defense is made equal. That means I don't have to defend everything that I do. And I need to be discerning at the moments that I defend myself and moments that I don't. And so when he wrongs me, when that issue is brought up, I'm to hold him accountable for his actions. But my job is to forgive him and pray for him and even love him as Christ has loved me. Now you may say, wait a minute, how does that gel within the text? Martin Luther, the great reformer, helps us a great deal with this. When he came to this text, he says, this is tough. How do you deal with that? And what he'd said was, to look at man, a singular man, in a singular way is probably wrong. That you and I as human beings are multifaceted. And what he said is that man is an institution and an individual. He said man is one coin, but on each side of the coins there's different parts. And what he said was, with intention, you and I as followers of Jesus Christ are called to be good citizens of the country of the United States of America, to submit to earthly authorities on one side, but also intention, recognize that our kingdom is not of this world. It's a kingdom of God's. And intention, we have to bounce back and forth as good citizens of America and good citizens of the kingdom of God. And there are times where we will need to assert our, our uh, rights as citizens of this country. And there will be times we'll forego them for the citizenry of God's kingdom. Does that make sense? And so we're going to hold those intention. And where, where the Bible makes it abundantly clear is hey, you obey as much as you humanly can unless it causes you to sin against your God. Okay? And so there will be times we will assert our rights. If someone wrongs you, is God saying that you can never uh, call the police and say, hey, so-and-so stealing my van. Come and get them. No, that's my right. I have a right to do that. Now... I can forego that and honor God in that way, but you're going to have to use discernment. Is it good for society? Is it good for you as a Christian to allow wrongdoing to go on? You're going to have to determine that. Your pastor can't do it in that moment. You're going to have to look at this word and ask the question, God, are you calling me to let it go? To let goods and kindreds go? This mortal life also, as Luther said in his great hymn? Or do I need to address it? Now, the Apostle Paul, who foregoes all of his rights, notice what he says. In two places, Paul asserts his rights. In Acts 16 and Acts 22, Paul says in those two passages twice, I have rights as a Roman citizen, and you can't walk over them. So stop beating me, because you need to hold me in trial with witnesses, and you're beating me, and a Roman citizen by birth, you can't do such a thing. So stop doing that, because you are wronging the law that we both uphold. Now, is Paul then saying that uh, he doesn't have to give up his rights? Notice, there's tension there. At moments, he says, I'm going to assert my right as a Roman citizen, and at other rights, he says, I'm willing to give up my salvation if it will save others. And so this passage we have to deal with with great tension, knowing that what we may have as a right in the human existence may not be the right that we should hold on to in the spiritual one. And let me give you an example of this, and you're going to laugh. I had a pop machine at my shop. A wonderful pop machine. Pop machines are glorious. They give great joy to all that enjoy the pop machine. And it wasn't my pop machine. It's a pop machine my family has had in front of their building for years. Forty years we've had a pop machine there. And, uh, and it was never an issue. And I got a letter a couple years ago saying from the village uh, board that you need to get rid of the pop machine. Um, it's in violation. And I asked what violation it was. And there was no violation. We just don't want it there. 
And I said, well, I don't want to give up my pop machine. It's, it's there. I enjoy it. it. It's a help to me. I can, I can make some money. It's never hurt anybody, and it's obviously serving a great many people. And I thought that was the end of it. I then get a call from the police. And the police say, hey, Mr. Bedal, uh, the board has said you need to cease and desist. That pop machine isn't gone by midnight. You're going to jail. That's your pastor, by the way. Okay? I'm floored. I can't believe this. Are you kidding me? So I get over there and I say, okay, I don't want to go to jail. Hey, the kids need a dad that's not in jail, so we're going to be there, okay? And I'll take the pop machine. I'm there at 1130, and uh, pop machines are not light, so I've got another employee helping me. And here's the thing. Right when we're going to unplug the pop machine, I kid you not, the two police officers there that are watching this say, hey, before you unplug, can we get a can of pop? Okay, that shows the absurdity of all this. Now, here's the thing. I am angry. I am angry. And I don't get angry very often. I am angry. And I start putting together a letter. That city ain't seen nothing yet. I'm no dummy. I am going to deal with this. They, they don't know who they messed with. Okay, some of you are like, over a pot machine. Yeah, you know what? If we let you talk about your issues of revenge, you would sound stupid too. Okay? <laughs> So I start writing the letter, okay? It's a great letter. Phenomenal. Well-written, good vocabulary, great English. I mean, it's a great letter. Except if I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. And the Lord starts convicting me as I look at the computer screen. Now, granted, I'm not saying anything wrong. I am being incredibly uh, submissive, incredibly um, um, respectful. I mean, my goodness, there's no cursing, nothing like that. I don't want to give you any picture of that. But the Spirit of God started just dealing with me and saying, hey, wait a minute. Let's just stop here, Bedal. Are you asserting your rights as a business owner over your job to win the village people, not the village people, the village officials, <laughs> the village officials, to me, because if you are, that's an absolutely lousy way to do it. And I had to stop. And I had to work with them, and it cost me thousands of dollars. I still have pop machines, but it cost me dearly, okay? But I had to cease and desist, not because of the police, but because to go and assert my rights would have cost me as a believer. And you say, well, that's, that's a dumb example. Well, you come up with your own. Because that's where I learned that my rights have to be asserted only when advantageous for the gospel. And some of you are fighting in your workplace over the stupidest stuff. Some of you are losing your testimony with your neighbors because their fence is a little farther than it should be because they got a car out there that shouldn't and all these things. And let me tell you something, and this, is, this blew me away this week. Understand this, when you pursue, listen, this is imperative. When you pursue revenge, okay, think of it this way. When you have a closed fist against another, in one hand, listen to me, you can never, you can never open your hand to the gospel with the other. Does that make sense? You can't say, oh, I'm going to go get you, but here's the love of Jesus. And so you're going to choose with that person, and I want you to know we will be held accountable for that. If we as Christians have our fists clenched and are shaking it at someone, God is going to hold us accountable and say, where was the open hand of love? You missed it. And some of us need to, for the stupidest reasons, need to stop asking for our rights and our retaliation and say, for the love of Jesus Christ, for the glory of the gospel, I am going to become less so the gospel can become more. This is huge. So how do we do it? You say, Tim, you only got through one verse. Yep, that's how long it takes in this church to get through one verse at times. Okay? So here, we'll get through the rest of them. How do we do it? We employ the proper response when persecuted and wronged. Jesus gives some examples, four of them. I don't know if they're hypothetical or real, but they help us to understand the principle that's at hand. As citizens of God's heavenly kingdom, I'm calling you to four things. Number one, to suffer in dignity. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, you turn to him the other also. You need to write down, if you write in your Bibles or somewhere where you can have a note, you need to understand that this verse is used brutally in our culture. 
The issue of the slap that Jesus is talking about is not an issue of assault, but insult. Okay? What Jesus is not talking about is someone coming at you ready to knock you down. Okay? You have a choice. You can either be hit by the person or you can defend yourself. Okay? You've got the right to not be bludgeoned. Okay? But that's not what Jesus is talking about. What he's saying is if someone hits you in the Hebrew culture, there were two types of slaps. The front slap and the back slap. Okay? The front slap was usually just a general uh, slap of, I don't like you, and you've said something or done something, I've slapped you, and we're done. The back slap was always the one that spoke of, of uh, someone saying, you're worthless, you're good for nothing, you're dumb, okay? And so I always knew how much in trouble I was. If my mom came slapping like this, most of the time she's like, okay? And what that would mean is someone was insulting you. In the Hebrew culture, you did not slap someone in the privacy of the two of you. You always did it in front of other people. So what is Jesus saying? Has something, Christian, been done to you by another that demeans you, that goes against your honor, your reputation? Has someone made you look stupid or dumb in the company of others? The slap is the pinnacle of all demeaning actions. It was to say you were worthless. If you've ever been slapped in public, you know what I mean. As a caterer, you you wouldn't believe this, but I will tell you, at a wedding reception, because of the customer's own wrongdoing, in front of 300 guests, I was slapped. And I will tell you, there is not a singular time where I've been more humiliated or embarrassed. And I was in the right. And Jesus is using this example to say, whatever anybody does to you in word or deed, in that moment, you're going to want to fight back. In that moment, you're going to want to repay evil with evil. And God says, let them do it. Why? Because a gentle response turns away wrath. Because you don't do it silently and say, yep, go ahead and put some stank on it this time. I mean, really, let me have it now. But that you do it saying, I do this because I love you. I do this because Christ loves me. Because Christ was reviled and he did not revile back. And and if that means you've got to hit me again, you've got to demean me again, then I'm willing to endure that for the cause of Jesus Christ. Because me hitting you back will limit my ability to share the gospel with you. And I'm not willing to do that. Number two, endure hostility. Verse 40, he addresses the issue of lawsuits. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. My goodness, Jesus, what are you telling us? Jesus is saying quite simply, are your things more important than the example that Christ has called you to live? Are your earthly possessions more? So you're sued. Defend yourself. But, but if you're going to lose your testimony over a lawsuit, it's not worth it. Just let them have it. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 33 through 35 says that the New Testament church was a church that rejoiced when they lost their stuff. Why? Because it made their kingdom work all the greater and it would make heaven so much more because of what we've lost here on earth. What stuff are you holding on to that you're grabbing a hold of and fighting over? One of the saddest things I see as as a dad is my children hating one one another over stupid stuff. And yet we do the same thing with friends and family and people we don't even know. And God is grieved. Number three, submit willingly. Verse 41, someone tells you to go one mile, you go two miles with them. What in the world does that mean, Jesus? Well, that was indicative of the day they lived in. Roman authorities had every right, if you were a Roman official or a soldier, at any point you could call upon an inhabitant of the Roman Empire to do really whatever you needed them to do. You say, well, where do you find that? We don't have to look very far than the scriptures. Simon of Cyrene. Jesus is walking to, or carrying the cross to Golgotha. Not enough power in his beaten body to continue on. A Roman soldier says, hey, you, 
Do you think Simon had a plan that he was going to do that that day? Nope. He was in Jerusalem doing his own thing, uh, maybe for work. We don't know. But we know that that wasn't in his plans to carry the cross for Jesus. And he was brought into service. And yeah, that changed his schedule. It changed his times. It cost him. It ruined his outfit, no doubt. It caused him sacrifice. They didn't say, well, take care of your kids and and take care of your issue and then come. No, you're going to do this now. And he was called into service. And so here's the thing. I don't want to belabor it, but is your boss asking you to work the weekend? And you're like, man, I've worked a whole week, and now you're causing me to call to work a weekend. Or you're calling me to do this, or I'm being required to do that. Or or someone comes and ruins your schedule because you're going to go to a ball game or go golfing, and someone needs your help, and you're like, doggone it, I don't want to do it. I've got things to do, and I've worked hard all week, and now you're asking me to work harder. And I'll tell you, is the stuff of your schedule more important than being Christ to people who need it. Can I tell you, we would have a whole lot more Christian bosses if we as Christians were the greatest employees that they had. If we said, yeah, boss, yeah, I'm willing to do that, and here's why. Because I want to honor you. Because I want to serve you well. But even greater than that, I want to serve God. I want to honor Him. I want to do what He says, and if I can do that, then I'm going to do that. You know, there's no other better place in the great story of Paul and Silas in jail in Acts 16. The doors open up. They could run for their lives. They were falsely imprisoned anyway. And what do they tell the Philippian jailer? Hey, we're all here. Don't fret. You don't have to worry about us. We haven't gone anywhere. And you know what happens? Funny thing, the jailer becomes a Christian. Not only him, but his whole family. You don't think your boss can become a believer? You start living out this principle and going the extra mile for others, and you'll be amazed at what people will see. Finally, give generously. Verse 42, if someone uh, begs from you, do not refuse them, and do not refuse the one who will borrow from you. With no real banking system, it was all too common for people to borrow from one another. And as a result, people would become indentured servants. As a result. You worked until you paid it off. And Jesus says, listen, your money, is it so important to you that you've got to hold it over people's heads? That you've got to make people beg for it? Is your stuff that big? A follower of Jesus Christ should be as generous as can be because God has been generous with us. In this world, is money a valued thing? Is it more valued to you than Christ? Then why would you use your money in a way to deny Christ to a lost world that needs your generosity. One of the greatest testimonies this church has had in the life of one of my employees is its generosity. Some months ago, we were in the van driving to an event, and one of my employees who is relatively um, angry with the church picked up our annual report. You say, why in the world do you have an annual? Pastors have weird things in their cars. I had the annual report from from the church from the year prior. And he said, you know, Tim, he said, I, I get that you like Jesus and all that, but I hate the church. I, I, you know, they're all money hungry. It's about them getting rich and, and not helping and all of that. And, and he starts reading through and he says, hey, wait a minute. He says, what's this missions and outreach? He says, you give a lot of money. He's looking at our, our budget. You give hundreds of thousands of dollars go towards that. What is that? I said, well, that's where we send people to go share the gospel with others, where we help. And, and then, it, it was so thankful Pastor Scott had all of the areas where we gave to. And I started one by one saying, well, they're serving these people here, and they're serving these people there, and we're doing this, and we're doing that. He says, you do all that? You mean you don't just keep all the money? I says, if you know Village Bible Church, you know we don't keep all the money, Okay. Can I tell you something? That man has been in our church on more than a half a dozen occasions from that moment. And it's not that I didn't invite him, I did. But he started to see our generosity. And he saw that what we were preaching is what we lived as well. This will change people's lives. First, it will change our lives, and then it will change the lives of those who watch. So let me close, and I know most of you have closed your Bible already. I can hear you. Don't think you get away with it. Okay? I know it's been a long message, but it's been a good one. I know it has. Okay? You don't need to amen that. I'm, I'm strong enough. I'm confident. <laughs> let me close with Romans chapter 12, and you go home and bundle up for a cold day and let this resonate in your heart. Okay? Romans 12. Just, just remember this passage this week. When someone wrongs you, when someone hurts you, and I know it hurts. Okay? 
Jesus is reiterated by Paul when Paul says this, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Don't be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge. It is written, vengeance is mine. I, let me redo, blessed. Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy, listen, put that person in your mind that, that angers you, that, that is wronging you. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome, be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let's pray. What a passage, Lord Jesus. Wow, there's so much here. So much for us to apply. Lord, if we would just do the, what's in, entailed in these verses, your kingdom would be a glorious one in the sight of all. But Lord, we struggle. I struggle, Lord. I assert my rights and my, my responsibility to seek revenge and to repay. Lord, you've convicted me this week that that is not the way of Christ or his followers. So, Lord, I pray that we would apply this with discernment. This is hard. There's a tension there, Lord, and we want to get it right. We want to balance it right. And so give us discernment in our own localized situations, knowing that you call us above all to love and not repay evil with evil. So help us to know how to do that in our families, with our neighbors, coworkers, in our schools people we don't even know, let us know how to be you, how not to revile, how not to repay, but to bless and love and evangelize for the glory of your name. Now, Lord, send us from this place a little more in tune with your word and let us apply it today to those who deserve it least so that they may see you in us. It's in Christ's name that we pray, and it's by his power that we believe we can do these things alone. Jesus, the name above all names, we pray. Amen.